Hello, hello, and welcome again to a Beatles program, a weekly talk show podcast called Things We Said Today. This is a show in which we talk about anything that has to do with the Beatles, their past, the present, sometimes the future, any aspect of their careers, their music, their history, you name it, whatever comes to mind. I'm Ken Michaels. I'm one of the three regular co-hosts of this show, also known for my other Beatles program, a syndicated radio show called Every Little Thing. And I'm being joined by my two regulars, first of all, uh, contributing writer for Billboard magazine, also for Variety, Access.com, that's AXS.com, Hollywood Reporter, that's just to name a few. He's also the author of the book Meet a Monkey, Davy Jones, and that's Steve Marinucci. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ken. Hello, everyone. And also, our other regular co-host is a former writer for the New York Times in their classical department. He's our resident musicologist, also the author of uh, The Beatles from the Cavern to the Rooftop and the recent ebook Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything, and that's our very own Alan Cozen. Hi, Alan. Hello, Ken. Hello, everyone. And we do have a special guest on the show this time out, and we will introduce him in just a few moments. But first, we want to get to a couple of news items. First of all, we have uh, some very sad news, another major passing in the uh, rock world, that being Ray Thomas of the Moody Blues. And you'd know him for all the wonderful uh, flute playing that he did with the Moody's. He was also a great songwriter in the group. Uh, known for a few songs like um, For My Lady, which is one of my favorite Moody Blues songs, and uh, Legend of a Mind, to name a few. And uh, very sad news, he was one of the founding members of the Moody Blues, along with Denny Lane and Mike Pinder. Guys, you want to comment about this at all? How about uh, we'll start with you, Alan? Um, I really don't have a lot to say. I was never a huge Moody Blues fan, actually. So, That's kind of surprising to me, in a way. Yeah, I mean the, the, the Moody's blended rock with classical music, classical elements, and you know, mm. you're being a lover of classical music. So I would think, <laughs> yes, but I'm serious. Things don't necessarily always work that way, but uh, I mean, I, I like the Moody Blues. Okay, I just was never a mm-hmm. a, a big fan of the stuff, and uh, I mean, I have it all. Don't listen to it. <laughs> But, yeah, you know, so I will just defer to you and Steve. <laughs> okay. How about you, Steve? Well, I I'm, I also was not a huge Moody Blues fan, but I, I did listen to them a lot. And, you know, it's it's especially on the fact that they're getting, getting inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame. It's too bad that he's not going to be yeah. part of that. At least, at least he knew, you know, at least he got to find out about it um but um it's too bad he won't be there for the for the uh ceremony but i mean you know those early moody blues albums um are just you know are, are part of i don't know i it's hard to say it's hard to put it in words i mean they're they're really part of they were part of our you know like you could almost parallel it to tom petty in the you know for the young generation here with the Moody Blues, then uh, you know they were they were huge, and then FM radio played them a ton. Nights in White Satin, mm-hmm. Question, you know, I mean all those all those songs, you know. So it's it's very sad. It's too bad 
I had not heard that he was ill. It's, you know, anytime you hear about these things and you haven't heard that they're ill or anything, you just kind of go, yikes. And that's really what happened here because, you know, I wasn't aware that he was ill. And Neither was hear, I. And then to hear that, it's just, it's really sad. But our condolences to his family and, and his and his fans. I mean, God, that's just, it's just, and it's, again, it's just too bad it had to happen on the verge of them getting put into the Rock Hall. But, yeah. yeah. Don't you just hate when that happens right before the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremonies? It's kind of like well, the two members of the Dave Clark Five, you know? Well, that's the wor- that's the worst thing. I mean, that's really bad there. Uh, but, mm-hmm. again, at least Ray knew what was coming. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, from my perspective, you know, I love the Moody Blues and that that flute playing from Ray Thomas is just so much a part of so many of the classic songs like Nights in White Satin and Tuesday Afternoon. Those songs, Isn't Life Strange? You know, <laughs> it's, it's such a beautiful part of the songs themselves. And, you know, the Moody Blues are a band that I really appreciate because they're one of the few. It's such a it's a small percentage of bands that are out there where every single member actually contributes as songwriters mm-hmm. and that certainly was the case from uh you know from the justin hayward john lodge years on you know every single member wrote something and every member except graham edge uh would sing lead vocals so it was so much more of a group effort in many ways in, in that regard and mm-hmm. uh there's so few bands you could say that about and the moody blues do have some connections there with the beatles obviously denny lane joining wings and mike pinder uh was said to have introduced the mellotron to john lennon and uh you know he also played on a few songs on the imagine album plus i was reminded right after we heard the news about ray thomas that back in 1986 there was a concert that was held in birmingham and it was for a children's hospital this was a charity show which was put together by bev bevan of elo Mm -hmm. and he actually got the moody blues to perform and he also got ELO to reunite for the show. Robert Plant also performed. And as a special guest at the very end, to everyone's surprise, was George Harrison. And George came out on stage. And I'm not sure if he sang lead or not, but they did Money on stage. And they also did Johnny Be Good. And there is a photo that's now online, which I believe I have on my Facebook page, which shows the Moody Blues with Ray Thomas there with George Harrison on stage. So it was really nice that George played a part in that. And, uh, you know, obviously the Bev Bevan, Jeff Lynn connection right there. And because of Jeff Lynn, that's the reason why George was a part of that show. So very sad news about Ray Thomas. And, uh, you know, like we said, condolences to the Moody Blues fans and to uh, the Moody Blues themselves and their families. And the other bit of news that we have concerns the sales of vinyl albums for 2017 the beatles actually had the top two best-selling albums of last year with sergeant pepper leading the way no doubt because of uh the release uh the 50th anniversary and all Seventy-two thousand copies were sold and abbey road was in second place at sixty-six thousand. so that's pretty impressive and the sale of Vinyl albums apparently are continuing to rise with every year. So um, very good sign right there to show the demand for the Beatles on vinyl. Alan? Mm -hmm. 
Well, you know, it's I guess it's it's impressive that um, you know, given that a lot of vinyl sales these days are actually young collectors who are into very different things. You know, Daft Punk was a big vinyl album in its time too, and so it is kind of impressive that you know, given that that's the market, uh, that the Beatles are up there at the top of the list. Mm. Steve, how about you? Uh, I, I th- Abbey Road's been a perennial good seller it's on the charts you know a lot for vinyl sales so that's not that surprising pepper though obviously because and obviously it was because of the reissue is you know a good surprise um so but yeah but yeah abbey road abbey road is there and i'm trying to remember if pepper is uh but obviously the the reissue boosted pepper so Hmm. um but whenever, it. whenever the Beatles appear on the charts in any way, it always tends to be their later albums that reappear the most. So it tends to be Sgt. Pepper or the White Album or Abbey Road. Or one, or, or one. one. Yes, one, <laughs> one is, yeah, one is, one is like, uh, you know, is is, al- is almost like uh, Dark Side of the Moon, where it's on there a lot, you know. So that's true. Uh, anyway. All right, so we're happy to hear that news. So right now, why don't we welcome our special guest? One particular book, actually there's three that we're going to mention, that's been a big part of our lives, was a discography called All Together Now. And it was written by two gentlemen, Harry Castleman, and our special guest on today's show, Wally Pedrazic. This was, to me, one of the most indispensable books ever for a Beatles fan, and it's probably the most worn-out book I have in my Beatles collection, because I've used it so much for information and uh, for news and for trivia. I always go back to these three books, but um, it is, without a doubt, one of the most essential books, as are all three of the books that we're going to talk about. And uh, Wally Pedrazic is here. Thank you not only for putting together these books, but for being a special guest on today's show. Hi, Wally. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I, I dug out my copies, both the hardcover of the <laughs> All Together Now, The Beatles Again, and The End of the Beatles. And also I dug out my paperback copy of All Together Now, because so often I hear from, uh, well, just like what you, what you said, it's so worn, worn out, and then holding it together with tape and all. Well, I'm looking at my copy, and it's so worn out, held together with tape, because I, I used it just as often as you did, uh, just <laughs> as my own reference. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah. in fact, that was the reason that Harry Castleman and I did the book in the first place. And the name altogether now really was a description of, look, we need to get all the notes that we have scattered over uh, our notebooks in the pre-computer age and put it into one place that we can find what we want to find. And so thus all together now. And uh, we, uh, if I may just give a little bit of background, uh, we, we did that when we were in Washington, D.C., uh, li- living on the East Coast with uh, obviously easy access to New York. So basically, we did a computer database research book before there was a computer database research world uh, to be able to tap. So our computer database was the National Archives and the Library of Congress, uh, supplemented by trips up to New York to the Lincoln Center branch of the New York Public Library Rogers and Hammerstein Collection. 
And mm -hmm. when you combine those forces along with the various record collector associates we met along the way, and obviously looking at literature that had already been published, such as the Beatles books, but not yet the reprints. So we had to go to the, the original Beatle books uh, printings and uh, just call them for information that helped fill out what we already had in our notes. Let's say we were 80% of the way there, but then a concentrated period of, oh, I'd say about five months of intense research um, in the, the D.C., uh, New York area is what brought us to the, uh, the, the completed version. And we are, we are very proud of putting that all together now. Uh, <laughs> now, just uh, so our listeners know, in case they're not familiar with your books, but I'll talk specifically about All Together now. Sure. What makes this book so special is that, uh, first of all, you include the releases of Beatles and solo Beatle music up through 1975. You have the U.S. releases. You have the U.K. releases. And this includes everything, including EPs. Mm -hmm. And then on top of all that, you have the releases that were on Apple Records when they came out. You had side projects of the Beatles. If one of the Beatles wrote a song for someone else or plays on it or produced it, it's in the book. The songs they wrote for others. You also have a chapter on the songs that they covered as a band and in their solo careers and who the original artists were. And when those records came out, you know, there's so much in there, plus chart information from Billboard magazine and also in the UK on the British charts. So yeah, how I, did you how did you go yeah. about making it so uh, comprehensive? How, what was the thought in all of that? Uh, the, the thought in all of that was what did we want to know? What did we want to have handy? Uh, and probably the thing I'm most proud of for the approach we took was the Beatles, what we call for others and from others. Uh, the from others, obviously, is, is the influences. And that in itself was a, a delightful research project because you had things like Ringo Starr's Sentimental Journey album, which mm -hmm. meant when you were going from others, you were going back to the beginning of the 20th century to find the roots of some of those songs. And the for others was also delightful because... It basically said, look, the Beatles could play as individuals and as a group, but mostly individuals, even back in the mid-60s. They could decide to hang out with whomever they wanted. This is who they chose to hang out with. Mm -hmm. And we thought that that was a pretty important story to understand what it is that was going on with the Beatles musically. Uh, what, what caught their fancy? Uh, what did they decide to, uh, with whom did they decide to spend studio time, production time, or make, or earmark a song for someone to do? And I think it was taking that wide approach, both the from others and for others, that made us better appreciate the Beatles as, well, not just pop culture force, musical force. It forces you to get out of the box of saying it's rock and roll. Well, it's rock and roll, it's country and western, and it's rhythm and blues, it's show tunes, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's basic, uh, it's Louis Armstrong, it's, it, it's, um, it's, it's going back to that era, it's going back to Bing Crosby, 
And when you have that context, then when someone like a George Harrison comes out and does true love, it makes sense because mm-hmm. it's part of the music that they grew up on, that they embraced, that they were interested in. And uh, so that's what we were trying to convey is that, yeah, it's wonderful to have the Beatles canon. We were just saying that the Beatles canon could include so much more. And on the way to gathering those discs, you will expose yourself to far more aspects of music than you ever imagined that you could. I mean, how else would we have backed into David Bromberg, for instance, except Uh with a George Harrison connection on the first album? Now, once Harry and I listened to the first album, we became big David Bromberg fans. But the fact is that the George Harrison hook is what got you there. And yes, I know you could have done a Bob Dylan hook and other hooks, but I'm saying that George Harrison got our attention. That was the flag. And one other thing about how we immersed ourselves in it, I mentioned the Library of Congress. The Library of Congress had, not because of the Beatles, but because it was the Library of Congress, had bound back issues of New Musical Express and, um, well, Billboard, obviously, but I'm looking at the British, Melody Maker, uh, Disc Weekly and all, with Melody Maker and New Musical Express being the most complete collections, going back to the 20s. So it's it's not like they started this because of the Beatles. They started it because they were a music reporting uh, news publications. And those not only gave us lots of bits of trivia, which hadn't yet been mined, again, pre-internet world, but also gave us the context. It gave us the sense of where they were coming from, what they would have grown up on, what they would have, because we started in the late 50s, basically mid, mid to late 50s, reading every issue, just looking for anything that would help inform the story. Obviously, when you get to the Beatles have broken out in, in Great Britain, sometimes the whole issue would generate pages of notes. But mm. even in the old days, it's, it, there, there was that one moment where we're looking at Elvis is coming to uh, to uh, England. Elvis is coming to England. Elvis is coming to England. That was the rumor that was always there. And at one point, we turned to each other and said, he's never coming. <laughs> this, this, this is a story that's unfolding. We know how it ends. But because it's real-time news reporting, they don't know how it ends. So they're going to give uh, the perspective of the time, and that really helped. I'll give you one more snapshot. We then, uh, at each day's worth of uh, research, we would go back to an office area we were using and listen to what was then a pretty pretty definitive uh, BBC, uh, I think it was a 12-part history of the Beatles, and we would listen to the year that we were just researching. And at one point, during the coverage of 1964 in the U.S., we turned to each other without thinking and said, those Americans are so silly uh, because we had gotten ourselves so immersed in the British point of view, the British perspective, their British journey. So that really helped to better inform understanding uh, the U.S. because we had already seen what they did from nothing to something in Great Britain. It was a way of excitedly gathering all of the information that we wanted to have in place 
and putting it in a form that we hope people would enjoy and and share. And I'll tell you, I, I would be watching people in bookstores and all flipping through and seeing what are they looking at? What is, what is it that they find interesting? And they would be looking at titles and lists and pictures. So I went, all right, we did what we were supposed to do and, and people like it. That was mm. a long answer to your question. Sorry about that. <laughs> Well, you know, there's so many reasons to appreciate all together now, and uh, I want, just want to thank you for what you said about the influences, because the biggest reason why the Beatles are so varied in their catalog, group and solo, is because they did have so many influences, and like you said, Wally, even pre-rock and roll. You could even go back to Beautiful Dreamer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Stephen Foster, and that was written in uh, the 1800s, the 1850s, I think. So, um, and because of your book, we began to understand a lot of this stuff. But, um, and I also want to thank you because whenever I would go to uh, local record stores that had rare material, and certainly at the Fest for Beatle fans, for many years, before we had the internet, I would try to hunt down a lot of these side projects. Oh, where yeah. Is this, where is this song called Fourth of July that Paul McCartney wrote for John Christie? I never heard of it before. And, I, you know, certain songs like that. And uh, if it wasn't for All Together Now, I, would, I wouldn't even know about a lot of those songs. Anyway. Well, and, and actually, uh, another short, uh, another uh, influence on us is Harry Castleman and I uh, worked at the college radio station at Northwestern, WNUR, at the perfect time to be a Beatles fan. Uh, it was the early 70s, so you had that whole rush of solo material uh, that was coming out, which people loved and was very successful. And we were the resident Beatles experts, so we got first dibs on everything that came into the radio station, because, of course, <laughs> well, Harry and Wally have to see this. And uh -huh. so you, you mentioned Fourth of July in particular. Well, if you were at a radio station, there was no doubt where it came from, because you got the the promo package, which was touting it, uh, saying, you know, you know, Paul McCartney wrote it, John, John Christie sang it, here's the 4th of July, and going, oh, okay, great. I don't know if I would have found it in a record store. No, I wouldn't have found it in a record store, but it came uh, in the mail in a plain brown package with every other record release that was going to the, to the radio station. So that was yeah. a tremendous help for us in terms of finding things that would have been off the radar because everything would come through the uh, the, the mail transit. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, my local radio never played Fourth of July, so I never would have heard that song uh, or known about it probably up until that point if it wasn't for your book. Anyway, why don't we uh, let my other co-host speak? Alan, you have a question yeah. for, for Wally? Uh, sure. A lot of questions, actually. Before uh, we went on the air, in fact, before you you turned up, um, we were talking about a little bit about the publishing history of this, and I had always assumed, and perhaps wrongly, that the paperback version had come out first. I mean, that was the one that was plentifully available everywhere, and that the hardback came later. But is it the other way around? Oh, definitely was the other way around. Uh, we uh, contracted with a small uh, publisher in uh, uh, Ypsilanti, Michigan, uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. So that's and Press? Uh, Press. And frankly, it was our first book. 
So we had sent query letters uh, throughout the uh, the checklist of potential publishers, and they were the ones that said, this sounds intriguing. Went to the Library of Congress to look at other things they published, and I came back to tell Harry, I think we're going to be fine. They do lists. They do books <laughs> of lists. So I think that that's why they uh, said this has potential to be interesting. And then, God bless uh, the, the editor there, a guy by the name of Tom Schulpeis, Right. Uh, who, who kept pushing us to say, well, can you put a little more in there? Could you put a little more in there? You know, try. Do, do you want to do this list too? Put that list in. Uh, until finally he said, okay, enough. <laughs> uh, we, we need to get this thing published. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was that version that then was licensed uh, to Ballantine Books. And that was a, another example of perfect timing in that, Valentine looked and saw, oh, Paul McCartney has just demonstrated in his 1976 tour that there is still interest in things Beatle. Sure, we'd like uh, to put a bid in on that. And so that's what gave it its, uh, its massive uh, distribution. And that's the version uh, that most people know. But for all, that's the only one that went uh, uh, paperback. Right. Uh, but all three of them... Uh, were hardcover uh, editions, and um, the, the the second one just took a very short period of time, uh, 76 and 77. Mm-hmm. And then the final one, the end of the Beatles, took it to about... Uh, 80, 85, 80s. I think it was published. Yeah, yeah. we kind of cheated a little, pushed it, and it was, it was the mid-80s. And the final volume... We actually cut out about 110 typeset pages because he said, I'm not going to publish a 700-page book. <laughs> and so, oh. yeah, I know, I know. We had, whole, we, we had a whole expanded section on video uh, back then, uh, more about uh, British Ringo records, things like that. And he said, let's, let's wait on that. And, and we never did get back to... Uh, to doing uh, the Beatles uh, stuff with them. And then by that time, our parallel interest, the book Watching TV, had uh, gotten our uh, attention and our focus. And that was a season-by-season tele- uh, uh, history of television, which was equally immersive. Remember I said for the uh, All Together Now, we plunged into mm-hmm. uh, all the information that we could find about especially British uh, British news sources, well, take that and apply it to all of American television. Mm-hmm. And you've got the... Uh, afterwards, I said to Harry, why do we always choose projects like this? Why can't we do something we can knock out in maybe a month? But um, it, it just... That was in our, in our bones. We had to do it that way. Uh, if you do get the third volume, The End of the Beatles, you will find how deeply we can go. We've got the four bucketeers in there, yeah. which is a spin-off of a spin-off of a spin-off of a, uh, eventually leads you back to the Beatles. But uh, it was like, well, while we're here, why, why don't we look at what else the, these uh, uh, Mike McCartney and, and Roger McGough and all, what, what else they were involved in. So we started going into a lot of sidebars, mm-hmm. uh, which was fun. But uh well, and the third uh, volume, so, the third volume also has a, a pretty expansive BBC section, which is kind of interesting. Oh too. yes, yes, yeah. Um, In fact, what we did is, is Mark Lewison had published his articles about BBC tracks, and we looked at it and said, you know, there's one thing missing. 
an index to it. And so we, uh, with his permission, I said, Mark, this is what we're going to do. And he said, that's fine with me. And so we did a, a, an index guide, an annotated guide to uh, the, our series of articles that, that he had done for uh, the Beatles book um, reprint series, but with the, in the new section. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first one came out actually well before Mark had um, oh, yeah. started working on anything at all. And uh, it, it actually was a really interesting time to be writing a thing like this because there were no Beatles research books really to speak of. I mean, there were some biographies, a bunch of biographies, Hunter Davies and, and, and some sort of cut and paste things, but no one had, no one had really brought all this stuff together the way you had and to go on, you know, for three volumes, um, you know, over a decade, uh, really was, extremely handy and 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 Peary and press i think generally speaking was that way i mean they put out a lot of really good beatles research books oh yeah yeah uh they did uh something called every little thing uh they in fact they did a series of reprints as well right. uh, like they contracted with Derek taylor to do uh a reprint of uh, of his book uh and uh longest cocktail party and the, the delillo uh, so sort of taking parallel, it was like they did something called the Literary Lenin, which right. was literally that. It was it was a guide to writings by and about uh, uh, John Lennon. And one of my favorite non-Harry and Wally uh, books, uh, the uh, the collection of uh, the Beatles lyrics, uh, the uh, uh, uh-huh. again indexed by word. Yeah, yes. it's basically like I a, love that. A I love that book. Yeah, a concordance. Yes, thank you. Uh, and uh, if you want to know, well, what song had the word diamonds in it? Well, you're going to find it there. Mm-hmm. If you want to see chit, 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 that you've got that indexed in there. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, the only thing that was disappointing, but the, the authors of that had chosen the, the purity of their path, is if the Beatles did a cover version they didn't well, they didn't want to pursue the all the publishing nightmares they'd have to go through to reproduce those lyrics as it was they had permission to do the beatles uh, material which included uh, george harrison authored and ringo starr authored and lennon mccartney authored and they put all that in uh, in that volume and i use it all the time mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. What were you guys doing elsewhere in your life at the time you put this together? You you said you were at Northwestern and then you went to Washington. Now you're back in Chicago. So uh, what brought you both to Washington? In in Washington, again, let's get the era. We were working at the Democratic National Committee offices, and so that was our day job. And uh, we worked on things like uh, they had fundraising telethons, and uh, we were in uh, the city when Richard Nixon resigned. Uh, so we were working on the what they called the radio and TV uh, news service. This is back when there were radio stations that had their own news departments in much greater number than, than is true now, and so that we would call them with uh, audio clips of uh, Democratic senators, congressional leaders and such, 
and say, would you be interested in these comments that uh, Senator Humphrey offered on a budget deal or, or uh, offered on uh, uh, the, the international situation? Uh, and so we would have um, pre-cut 30-second clips that we would feed uh, over the telephone lines to um, individual radio station news departments who could then pick it up and use as much or as little as they, uh, they cared to. But it was us saying, see, we're making it so convenient for you to have these voices in your newscast. And they could say, Senator Humphrey said such and such. And if they credited us, great. If they didn't, we didn't care because we just wanted to get uh, Senator Humphrey's words out. So, mm-hmm. And then uh, that eventually led to, I, I ended up working on the political conventions, uh, which is quadrennial. But uh, I ended up working on the political convention, starting with the um, 1976 New York Democratic National Convention. And that came directly uh, out, out of that. So uh, we were doing other. Oh, and then Harry went and became a lawyer. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was wondering what became of Harry. <laughs> so uh, the the other thing, just you know, flipping through these again um, this afternoon, yeah. You have sections on bootlegs, which was sort of a semi-new industry at, at the time the first one came out. I mean, I think bootlegs yeah. hadn't really been out for more than five years or so by then. Right, yeah. So how did you decide, like, how to even handle those since they were, you know, let's say dubiously legal, actually totally illegal? No, they weren't legal at all. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what we decided is to treat them... Uh, or sort them by source as opposed to disk, because it would have been uh, a nightmare, mostly. It would have been a nightmare to say, well, here's this version versus that version versus that version of the tracks. Instead, we said, let's see if we can figure out where some of this came from and sort it chronologically that way. In some cases, we got it wrong. In most cases, we got it right. Mm-hmm. And it, we never considered them real releases. So that freed us from the, uh, the self-imposed requirements of, well, what was the release date? Uh, you know, what, what, what's the best pressing? What's the track order? Uh, well, who cares? Uh, because actually the way we got most of that material is there we were amongst fandom folks. And we had, through the kind generosity of collectors that we knew going back to our Northwestern days, all the way through to the actual formal research uh, out of D.C., and we just recorded everything. Uh, they let us uh, say, here, you, you want to borrow the stack of records? Sure. Went through, recorded them all. Went through another set, recorded them all. And then we came back, and therefore we had already gone one step away from them being discs. Mm-hmm. They, they were just tracks out there. So then we decided, well, let's start dealing with what are the interesting tracks here. Mm-hmm. And so what we like to say is they were rare imported discs. That, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and just, just leave it. I, that, that was the euphemism of the time, I guess. If this was a rare import. It's sort of, um, sort of the equivalent of Paul McCartney's herbal cigarettes. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was just funny uh, because once you've gone two steps removed from it, you focus totally on how good does this sound, and in most cases, it sounded awful. Uh, the exceptions, of course, being, and this, this now hits more volume two, the, the uh, Beatles again, 
would have been the um, the Decca tapes, mm -hmm. which excited us no end uh, because finally here are the tracks, and then good quality BBC material starting to hit the uh, the bootleg uh, circle as well, and. Uh, uh, so those we treated a little bit more like albums uh, because they were things that you actually wouldn't be embarrassed to put on your turntable uh, and have a non-Beatles fanatic uh, listen to. Uh, the BBC stuff especially. Though I do remember bringing some of the uh, DECA uh, tracks, Especially the, the first couple, uh, the, the singles. I mean, because remember, they were parceled out as singles mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, before they became albums. Uh, sort of like the Christmas singles have been parceled out to us now before we see them as an album some future release year. And I played it for one friend who was a definite Beatles fan, female Beatles fan, but not a collector. And so she listened to the first couple and said, well, I can see why they were turned down. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening to it as a song, as a record. I'm listening to it as a collector. So I'm all excited. And she said, well, that's very nice. Thanks for sharing it. Uh, <laughs> and I don't really, you don't have to get a copy of this. Trust me, I, I, I can live without having my own copy of it. Hmm. So, uh, and, and I think that's part of the, the consumer protection approach we decided to take with bootlegs, which was most are not worth buying if you're talking about listening and enjoying Beatles music like you would on all of the canon releases. Mm -hmm. Or with them uh, backing somebody else, producing someone else, appearing on someone else's album. I'd say get those others first, and then since they're bootlegs and since they were stolen, see if you could do what we did, borrow them from somebody and don't buy them. Uh, and then just record them and add them to your collection. Now, obviously, the um, the world of bootleg collecting has gone a whole other pathway thanks to the uh, the tracking that they did for the the, the video the, the, what's it, the guitar game and all, so that you can play along. Mm -hmm. and, and so, all of that means those are actually interesting to listen to because you can garner something from that. Mm -hmm. But frankly, 85th row balcony in a stadium of a live concert of the Beatles is fine to listen to once, and then you don't get all that excited about it afterwards. So that's why that came into the the bootleg section as opposed to the formal releases, as opposed to uh, stuff that we would recommend you buy. Mm -hmm. Again, mm -hmm. a long answer. Yeah. <laughs> by the by the third book you begin talking about specific things like the black album of you know Let It Be oh, yeah. outtakes. Yeah. And because yeah. by by then we're talking nineteen eighty five, that book, um the bootleg right. world has kind of cleaned up quite a lot. So. And there there were records that I was really excited to uh, have in my collection. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to the, this is not news breaking news because I already admitted this at a uh, symposium back in uh, 2014. But one of the things Harry and I did, which I think transformed our uh, attitudes that some bootlegs were worth getting, is through a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, I honestly don't know who, really, uh, asked if we could do the liner notes for the collection of the Decca tapes. 
And so that's when we concocted a fictional history of the Deca tapes. Mm. Uh, and so if you get a copy of uh, all the Deca tapes, and it has liner notes by Grid Leak on the backside, it, it's a discographer's way of fictionalizing stories. All the discographical information is real catalog numbers, and uh, it's uh, the dates are real and all. We just change one thing. Decca signs the Beatles. And this is a collection of the unsuccessful releases that they had put out before the Beatles, <laughs> disappointed at the performance of Decca um, promoting them, uh, jumped, to, uh, jumped to EMI. Hmm. Uh, so, um, and then to, in the ultimate in cheekiness, before revealing that we were the ones who wrote that, we debunked the liner notes in the third volume, The End of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So we were able to do a pretty good job debunking them since we knew exactly uh, what we had fabricated along the way. So. Okay, and before yeah. I turn you over to Steve, just one other thing I want to point out for people who might run into these books now that we're talking about them. And um, uh, the know your wrong sections in each one. I mean, those are actually still pretty useful because there are, you know, although we know that those records aren't the Beatles, there sure was a lot of stuff out there kind of either posing as the Beatles or rumored to be the Beatles or, or whatever. So what, what gave you the idea of including that? Because we kept getting people saying, well, you got to include this and you got to include that. And after we would go through like the British publications, I would say, no, Lord Sitar is not George Harrison. Uh, or when we saw the ad, this wasn't even obscure. It was the ad for the Peter Cook and Dudley Moore Ellis Bumblebee song. I went, okay, that's probably not the Beatles then. So when we had things like that, I said, well, we have to just say it in so many words. This is not the Beatles. And so we had a lot of fun uh, with that. And in the case of the Cook and Moore, I mean, we... We went backstage uh, when they were performing something called Good Evening and came up to him and said, do you mind if we ask you this question? And um, I think uh, Cook was the first one we spoke with. He goes, hey, Dud, a couple of these guys want to ask about the, uh, the Ellis Bumblebee. Oh, they've heard it? Well, that makes four of us. So uh, it, it was confirmation that uh, we, we were happy to do because it was a service, because, hey, if it was really them, then we wanted the discs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, and you had to put something in there about the Mass Marauders, too. Right. Oh, that I, I love that. The Mass Marauders were so much fun, especially if you ever picked up the disc. It, it was the ultimate in fictional supergroups, which was mm -hmm. suggested to be everybody in, in, uh, under the planet, on the planet that was important. And uh, so we had to talk about that. I created uh, my own Mass Marauders when I was visiting one of the uh, New York Village uh, record stores where they had uh, the trash, white trash version of, um, was it Carry That Weight? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And so they had uh, something like John Lennon on it. And I went, uh, I don't think so. Uh, and so we started talking and I said, well, look. If you're going to make the claim, and we started turning it into a mass marauders. So we put everyone we could think of 
uh, on the uh, the sleeve that was on the display copy. I think it went from like fifty dollars to five hundred dollars, <laughs> and it said something like "rumored to include." And I went, "Fine, do whatever you want. I'm not buying it. But if you're going to go in for a penny, in for many pounds." <laughs> okay, wow. so Steve. Well, I, I, I too have a lot of questions. Um, in um, the end of the Beatles, there's a picture of. Uh, Perry and Beetle books, and it includes uh, You Can't Do That, the big bootleg book. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and as I write this letter, which is an interesting piece of history now with, you know, with rare, with uh, letters to the Beatles from fans. But that Things We Said Today book has uh, has been uh, as something I've referred to so often. It's amazing. I, I mean, that is such a great book. And I should mention to anybody listening that. All three of Wally and Harry's books are available at a relatively reasonable price if you look around at the in the usual places like Amazon or eBay. Um, yeah, and, I, and I'm pleased to see that because, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot in detail about the books because we've all seen them. But mm-hmm. if someone um, wants the opportunity to flip through, you can find them at, at not an unreasonable price. Sometimes is- I even go shopping for extra copies. Which is really amazing at this point because a lot of things like that, especially out of print things, go skyrocketing. You know, the prices go skyrocketing. Uh, you know, just for anything. And but yeah, they are because I I I happened to check today, as a matter of fact. So yeah, you can. I think you can get them all for under fifteen bucks a piece, and some are a lot less than that. So do you guys, um, do you guys own the rights we, to them? Uh, yeah. If we ever wanted to do a reprint and all. And in fact, we've explored doing it a couple times over the decades. But because there's, we would want to retrofit so much about them that uh, it would turn it into a, a completely different project. Like two or three times, we we got kind of far into it and then pulled back. The most recent was when the internet started to, or not the internet, just just the whole idea of digital sorting came out, and so. Uh, uh, Tom Schulteis from uh, then it was Popular Culture Press asked us to consider combining them all into some kind of digital disc uh, reference work but we were a little bit ahead of where the technology was and I came in with all of these requests of triple cross-referencing no, no, it, it can't do that yet so you can't just click on this title and have it go 12 other places uh, because uh, that's the way you'd love to do it. Uh, right. So, uh, but yeah, we uh, we have the rights, but it would just be you'd have to definitely renegotiate all the picture rights because that's it's it's a different uh, world now mm-hmm. uh, for uh, for such things. But but the data, uh, sure. Uh, unfortunately, all of this was written pre-computer, which means we'd have to retype all of the data, or probably scan it and then fix up the scans, yeah. uh, optical character recognition. But it would be a massive project, and Harry said, well, given the choice between updating our watching TV book and updating these Beatle books, I'm going to go with the watching TV books. Those lawyers, they always focus on things <laughs> that are so much more practical. Huh. Wally, how long did it... I mean, the the fundamental question is, how long did it take you to do all three books and 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 especially the first book when did you conceive the first book and how when did the first book come out oddly um 
It took years but months. Namely, Harry and I uh, spent years together at WNUR at Northwestern, and we met as freshmen and started swapping Beatles information back then. And Harry uh, had the first draft by hand of sorting the uh, Beatles material into some kind of list. And that's where he came up with the uh, highlighting things that had been previously issued to make it stand out as you look from one disc to another. You can see, all right, there's only four new tracks on this. All the rest are reissues. And we defined reissue as being something that had previously come out in the U.S. and after a significant amount of time then came out in the U.K. or vice versa. So not simultaneous releases, but uh, stuff that they, they plucked these tracks and put them elsewhere. So he had those working notes, uh, and we used them on and off on projects together uh, throughout our, our college days together. What years, so what years are we talking about? That then? would have been in the 71 to 75 range. Okay. And so a pretty rich time to be looking at solo efforts. In fact, um, if you ask me to name my favorite Beatles years, apart from the obvious group years, that period of like 72, 71, 72, 73, 74, a little bit of bleed into 75 would be my favorite Beatles years because mm -hmm. there were so many strong solo uh, releases. And so it was fun chronicling them, and he kept his notes going for that as well. So that became the basis of our uh, our book pitch. We then just had to translate it into typeface because you're not going to sell a handwritten set of notes uh, to any kind of publisher unless the handwriter is Bob Dylan. So, so it was hand it was handwritten when you when you gave it to to Perrin? Oh no no no! We showed it to Perrin saying this is what we're going to do, and then they said, well, here's the typewriter. It was it was a composer, uh, and and that we. Uh, uh, so I, I personally typed, uh, because I'm a better typist than Harry, I personally typed every page in oh all together now. We typed camera-ready copy in the days before digital, which means if you made a mistake, <sighs> there was a lot of work involved in correcting the mistakes. Right. Oh, my God. Oh, my uh, God. Uh, and, and, and so when you gave it to Perian... You didn't have it on computer disk, right? So, nope. nope. Wow. There was there was a box of camera ready on, on a certain type of paper that they would mm -hmm. then turn around and send to the printer. There were however many hundred pages uh, were there. Uh, we did them. Yeah, I, I understand uh -huh. camera. I understand camera ready. Number one, from having worked in the newspaper business, but also my father was a printer, and sure. he had his own print shop, and that's what he did. And and yeah, I I understand that. And it it was very, it was especially in the days before a computer when my parents first opened their shop. They had a my mother would type on a IBM Selectric, and that's the way they did it. And so it was you know it, it was crazy. I mean before before computers, it was absolutely nuts. And I can't imagine you typing all all these numbers and things. By hand, I mean that just that must have drove you. Again, how long did it take you to type all that stuff? Oh, up? okay. So uh, basically, I said it took us several years. Namely, basically the time of our college careers, um, undergrad college careers, to uh, assemble the information, 
add to that another, oh, say, year or so in the Washington, D.C., New York corridor. And so, the, but the typing, uh, basically, that was just a couple months. Really? I think it was, it was only two months. Hmm. Uh, and uh, and then it was just going through the uh, the, the processing that was uh, uh, necessary for uh, you know do a completed book. I'll and tell you what 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 I hated. What? Maybe it's you dash Hal David dash Bird Bacharach dash mm-hmm. Barney Williams dash uh, running time. Oh, let's do that again on another reissue. Oh, let's do that on another reissue. Uh, Ruth Russell dash Bill Medley slash. Oh, here's Hal David again. And so there were some of those that, especially the Tony Sheridan uh, tracks, where I don't want to see those names again. (laughs) The other thing that is just really astounding about, especially about All Together Now, but again, all three books, is the amount of data that you, you and you were talking about this earlier the data you had and there was no at least as i as i can recall there the communication with the record companies t- uh, today is a lot different than it was back then i mean there was basically no communication with the record companies i'm assuming i'm assuming you did this all on your own so you gathered all of that information for each individual release on your own correct Mostly. There are a couple of exceptions. Uh, there were some actually very nice people in Apple, Los Angeles. And so we would keep our questions very, very focused. And uh, there was one a helpful person that I said, look, we're looking at this John Lennon rock and roll, and we have no idea. Could, could you give us some kind of hint as to who is involved in this? And much to my amazement, we get a call a couple of days later. Well, I can't give it to you by track. But here are the people that were at the sessions. Okay, we'll take that. Uh, we'll take that information. Uh, but mostly, yes, it, it was us checking uh, every available resource. You got to remember, though, this is where our time at the college radio station helped because there was a lot more information than you would think put in the press releases and what have you uh, as each record would come out, especially the four others uh, releases. So I still have, I think it's like a 12-page press release with the first David Bromberg album that gives you <laughs> anecdotes about how these uh, songs came together, including the song George Harrison wrote called The Hold Up. So there was information, and because we had been in the industry, so to speak, at just the right time, uh, we were able to uh, uh, snatch a lot of that, and that went into our personal files as we uh, departed the radio station. Because that's the real, that's the real amazing part of the books is the exhaustive amount of information you gathered, you know, again, pre-computer. I mean, that, that, I mean, that's miraculous as far as I'm concerned. And, and, and that was one of the reasons I mentioned also the uh, Rogers and Hammerstein collection at the New York public library, uh, Lincoln center branch is they had some wonderful gramophone catalog. There were these catalogs of, um, I think particular of, uh, the single that never was from uh, Wildlife, it was listed in the gramophone catalog uh, and assigned a number and all. Because I'm just flipping through lists and went, oh, I hadn't seen that before. Let me drop that in. Well, it never came out, but it was assigned a number. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so far in the process, 
that it actually made a distributed to the public, granted a very specialized public, namely the, the record store industry, uh, but it was real as far as they were concerned. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we uh, checked any kind of, if it, if it lived and breathed as an official industry catalog, uh, we were there. You know, the old phonologs uh, mm -hmm. that you oh, see yeah. in every record store. Well, I, I had friends who were at record stores who said, you, I want, I've saved you the pages. Or you know, as we've gotten rid of old pages, I put them on this pile for you. Uh, or I, I would camp out at a, a friend's, uh, I knew the, the owner of, of, of a store, and I would camp out for a day just flipping, just looking, just looking to see, not even for anything in particular, but what it wouldn't occur to me to ask about, I would find in there. Uh, mm -hmm. A lot of times it would be reissues too, like, oh, so there's the reissue number there. Oh, those are singles that never made the charts because all they are are repackagings of such and such singles. So, yeah, we, uh, uh, we looked for first-hand information as often as we could, both on the consumer level and on a limited extent on the industry level as well. You, uh, you um, were talking about Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. I was looking down the acknowledgments in the front of All Together now, right just now, and a couple of names popped out, Neil Aspinall, Ray Coleman and uh, Peter Cook and Doug, Dudley Moore, and also where, where was the other one? I did? Oh, Richard Perry Productions, Lennon Music, and there was one more here. I'm I'm flipping through. Oh, Tony King. How did did? I mean, the Neil Aspinall name can. Oh, and Mal Evans. The uh, those two names especially imply that there was some direct help from the Beatles. Was there any at all? Oh, not not from the Beatles. No, no. Okay. It, it would it would be questions to their either their publishers their publicists uh now in the case of mal evans it was actually a conversation with him i said look uh we we've reached this point where we don't know if this is true or not could you tell us and it took uh, weeks but we finally got a phone number and a phone connection to him in los angeles you know before his tragic death and uh and just said no that's not true yes that is true i was there yes that is true no that isn't true and it was just because he would know he was mm -hmm. there right um, for uh, melody maker ray coleman uh, I, he chuckled at it years later he was the one who, who signed the letter that gave us the permission to reproduce the melody maker charts and i said oh, ray i wanted to show you something that you sent us years ago when he was speaking at a beatles convention uh and he goes oh yeah well that's me uh, okay, well, I'm glad it worked for you. Uh, so it wasn't a personal connection, but it was an official connection in that we did have to get uh, those uh, uh, clearances. And uh, the, the same with uh, uh, reaching out to like the likes of Neil Aspinall. And some of those credits came through the publisher, uh, Perian Press, who also did some outreach to get permissions for some of the material, uh, mostly images uh, that we were using. Mm -hmm. I, I was also going to ask you, because another really interesting and really very useful thing in, in all of the books is the chart information. And you said you mentioned Ray Coleman in, 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 with NME and uh, or Mel, was it Melanie Maker? I'm sorry. Melanie Maker, um, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, um, uh, you have uh, Billboard. I mean, did they, did you have a, what was involved in getting all that chart information? Because that is really exhaustive considering. 
Oh, actually, the chart information from Billboard was the first thing Harry and I ever did mm -hmm. uh, because uh, there were bound volumes of Billboard at Northwestern University. And but did you, so, did you compile that stuff yourself or did they give oh, yeah. it to you all compiled? Yeah, because we, we had to compile it ourselves because of our definition of what counted as a Beatles release. Because if you said, oh, could you give us the Beatles chart information? Well, they wouldn't necessarily have Mary Hopkins produced by Paul. Right. They wouldn't necessarily have George's on this uh, cream record uh, because that's not according to the parameters that they would define as a Beatles release. So it was us looking for what we considered part of the story. And so therefore the only people who could do it would be us because we knew exactly what we were looking for and were determined to uh, keep the, uh, they run as, as consecutive as possible. In fact, I love the fact that by counting uh, things like History of Eric Clapton, Tommy with uh, Ringo doing a guest vocal, approximately Infinite Universe, we really do extend how long a chart run the Beatles had on Billboard's charts because those kind of cover when basically sometime in New York City drops off. So from uh, October of 1972 to January, to, to April of 1973, there actually are no Beatles albums on the charts, solo or otherwise. But by having all of these four others in our tracking, it's an uninterrupted flow from 1964 to the end of the book, mm -hmm. uh, which I think is, it just looks more impressive uh, right. when you say that. And, and you said there was a there were a bunch of pages cut out of the end of the Beatles. Do those still exist? I was looking for them the other month. <laughs> uh, they're probably in some box somewhere because they got to the point of typesetting. I mean, it wasn't just here's a draft. Uh, it was I get this note from the from Tom Schulte. I said uh, then it was Popular Culture Press. Said, you got to cut out about a hundred pages from this. And so um, I, I cut out Dark Horse Revisited, uh, Ringo Records Revisited, Apple Revisited, uh, the films, Apple Music Publishing. Oh, my God, talk about uh, self-indulgent in a way, but just the type of thing that collectors would love long before we started getting these definitive histories of Apple. Uh, because of the Library of Congress, I had all of these Apple Publishing credits uh, that covered multiple pages, and it's like those have got to go by the wayside because it's too many, too many pages. So now I've created the the unpublished, uh, the end of the Beatles archive uh, deluxe edition potential. Uh, it's sitting there somewhere in some box somewhere in my basement shelves, <laughs> but I haven't seen that for for a very long time. I just remember being kind of bummed out. I'm like, but they're already typeset. We haven't even indexed them yet. He reminded me. So. Because I'm I'm sitting here thinking, even if you don't put the books out again, it would be great to have that lost information. Just yeah, have like that. yeah, because in particular, Dark Horse had some interesting releases UK only. Ringo's record certainly did, mm -hmm. and and the whole publishing world, the uh, Apple Music publishing, is truly its own story. Though I think that's been covered pretty well as of late but uh, sure. for the longest longest time it's like wow 
This is Apple, right? It's Apple before there was Apple, so to speak. Right. Apple before there was Apple Records. Well, I'm just saying for historical purposes, I oh, think sure, sure. it would be great to have that stuff, you know, that you guys did, so you can get credit for, you know, get credit for it. Maybe even, I mean, if you were to do it, you know, by maybe computer disk or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, some way, somehow, but make PDFs out of it or whatever. But it would be great to have that, even if it's, you know. I mean, it is it is what it is, but I, th- yeah. I think it, it would be great to have. So, Ken, I back to you. I look in my shelves, uh, okay. but not immediately. Okay, okay. Go ahead, Ken. I actually wanted to ask you a few questions about the charts, because sure. as far as Billboard is concerned, you actually have week by week where the albums and singles were placed on the charts, as opposed to, say... Uh, Joel Whitburn's books that came out later on, which told you where the songs peaked. Although later on, he also put out books, which was week by week. Were there any clearance issues with Billboard as far as that's concerned? We, we sent Billboard exactly what we were going to put in the book. Said, can we put this in? And they said, uh, yeah. Uh, now, you notice that we don't have Billboard charts in the subsequent volumes because they came and said, well, you know, on second thought, maybe that's not what we would ideally like to have as the arrangement and so it was fine what we did but mm. and we weren't we we're not uh, we were absolutely upfront because like i said we had it already i mean it's like this is what we've researched this is the form it takes we we need your permission to include it and yeah. so they they said it was okay but then when we returned to them for the subsequent volumes they said we'll take a pass on it this time i think because that gets awfully close to almost reproducing the chart as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, summarizing what uh, the, the individual chart histories. Like it peaked at this, it was on the chart for six weeks, uh, this was the low point, this was the high point, here were the dates. But you never actually look at the chart. And right. what we did is, is we basically did mini charts uh, that, that followed the thread of just those records. It was fine, it was approved, but just for the altogether now, not for the subsequent volumes. Yeah, it was so much fun to watch these charts that way because you saw what records were on simultaneously. And as one song went down the charts, one went up the charts, and you had this side project, you had this Peter and Gordon song, or you had this Cream release, like you were saying. So, And also about Melody Maker, you kind of answered the question about Ray Coleman giving permission. But sometimes when you look at reference books, when it comes to the British charts, they go by the British Music Research Bureau, which is a combination of, it's an average of, they had four different charts in England. How do you decide, and and for that matter, there may be some people who are not Billboard fans in America either. They could have have gone with Cashbox. Yeah. So how do you decide between Billboard and Melody Maker? um, Okay, uh, Billboard was easy. To us, that was the official. But for Mm. Melody Maker, uh, Harry and I went back and forth on whether it was going to be New Musical Express or Melody Maker. And what finally determined it is there was a run of issues of New Musical Express that the Library of Congress did not have. So the only charts we had from beginning to end were for Melody Maker. But Harry was tracking New Musical Express, I was tracking Melody Maker, and we were both lobbying for our respective uh, news publication. But it was not any kind of combination. It wasn't record retailer. It wasn't any of those. It was because, remember, our context was these are news reporting entities 
And this is the chart that they had as part of their news reporting. So we want to reproduce that. Mm -hmm. We don't want some after-the-fact analysis of what it was. We want the fact that the headline of Melody Maker could say, uh, Beatles at number three, exclamation point. Uh-oh, what happened here? Uh-huh. Uh, so, I mean, they, they took those charts seriously, at least certainly by during through the, the mid-60s. When you get into the like the seventies era, it's like, oh, do we do we we used to do headlines like that? Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was serious business back then, and it was another entree into the British reporting of pop music. Remember, there was there was no Rolling Stone for us to be looking at, and even the early Rolling Stones were more essays as opposed to news uh, articles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I'm a big fan of side projects of the Beatles, and it all started with with All Together Now. And I'm sure that you realize that that book helped to give birth to the Chris Englehart books of Deep Undercover. So, and for the information that you got from that, you were saying you used Beatle Book, which I guess you mean Beatle Monthly, right? Yeah, Beatle Monthly, yeah. Okay, I would think that must have been like the best source for that kind of information, but that's got to be the toughest thing to assemble because there's always the chance that something slipped through the cracks that oh. that you didn't that you didn't know about. So how do you keep on top of that other than uh, you know a few reference few references that you used? That's where uh, well, we were lucky uh, for all together now in that we were able to to. To capture most of the stuff, certainly from the 60s, because these were British news publications, and so they cared. I mean, Mm. they cared the same way that a fan would care. Now, a British news publication in 1976 would not have cared anywhere near as much. I think it was uh, NME uh, that, in reviewing the Love Songs album, said, you know, uh, I'll give my review copy of this to the first person who writes in and tells me what was so great about this group in the first place. <laughs> so, you know, there was definitely a different attitude then. But at the time in the 60s, uh, they would be just as eager as we fans would be to make sure they captured that news. Having said that, yeah, we knew stuff was going to slip behind the cracks. So one time talking between the cracks, talking once with Harry Nilsson in one of his more lucid moments. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, we, we, I was specifically asking him about the Flash Harry album and all, and he said, so what, what are you doing this for? And, and I was explaining that it was the continuation of this All Together Now project and, and all the stuff that the Beatles had been associated with. And he goes, oh, you'll never get it all. There's so much cleaning up the language stuff that they've done that no one knows about. And, okay, well, anytime you want to tell me, just uh, <laughs> let, let me know. And there have been some that have been frustrating dead ends. You know, like, was this person associated with John Lennon during his New York City days or not? Or did they just hang out, but nothing was ever committed to record? And so, yeah, we took as a given that there would be a small percentage that we just would never know. We would never. In fact, something just came out uh, this past couple weeks. I was listening to the uh, Peter Asher uh, series, and he talks about uh, the single he produced, uh, which was And the Sun Will Shine. Uh, Right. Paul Jones. uh, Right, right. Paul Jones. And we had the B-side is not associated with Paul. 
And mm-hmm. in uh, a couple episodes ago, he said, oh, and then on the other side, with Paul also on drums, we recorded The Dog Presides. All right. So that's something that we could only find out from the producer. Uh, probably not Paul, because would he even remember that detail? But the producer, Peter Asher, would remember that detail. So that's a perfect example of there was no source that would have gone into that detail about that session saying that he was also on the B side. Uh, so there's still stuff to be found. And now I want that. That's one of the singles I don't have. I, I, I tried over the years to myself to acquire it, and I lost out on an auction bid for it. So, yeah. You can hear that song on YouTube. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, but if I wanted to physically have it. Right. Uh, that, that's what's, that's what's ch- and that's what's also made it kind of interesting about Altogether Now and the other two volumes take on a different role now than they did originally. Before it was, what do I need to look for? Now, in a YouTube world, it's where did this come from? Mm-hmm. And so it gives you a context for this music that you don't get from a YouTube, or if you do, it might not be accurate context. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you the number of times I'm reading the comments, noticing, like, I'm not going to respond, I'm not going to comment, <laughs> totally mm-hmm. wrong, but it won't make any difference because in this internet world, my word equals the same as everyone else's word, so don't get involved. Mm-hmm. Don't get involved. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, there's an obvious question that I have to ask you, mm. and that is, did you ever consider doing a fourth book from uh, the end of the Beatles, which was the third book, took you through 1983? Did you want to continue after that? I did. Actually, as I said, Harry was a little less interested, so I thought I would jumpstart it by taking it on as a solo project. And so I was working with uh, Popular Culture Press for something called Strange Days, the music of John, Paul, George, and Ringo 20 years on. I did a couple of uh, uh, article pieces for it. In fact, a couple of them ended up in Beetle Fan, I think. Uh, and then other things came around. I said, I, I, I just, I need a collaborator. I can't do this solo because this is the type of uh, detail work that you need to bounce it off of someone else. And so that just quietly died, except it made a couple of popular culture presses listings of forthcoming books, which is fine. You know, there are books that are announced and never come out uh, uh, all the time. But it also got a five-star review uh, on Amazon, the book that never came out, and also got referenced in a guide to Beatle or guide to rock books, and it was listed uh, positively as well. And I knew I, I didn't know that until my next door neighbor came up to me with a printout and said, "How can I find this? I've been trying to order it, and no one has it." And I looked, what are you talking about? Oh, oh, no, it never came out. Well, it had to have come out. It got five stars. <laughs> I later found out it was a friend of mine who, uh, who put the, he said, well, if Wally wrote it, it must be good. And so he gave it five stars. And that's the closest we got. Uh, I didn't actually even um, uh, consider using the leftover cutouts from uh, the, the end of the Beatles, which I probably should have. That would have given it a real jump start. And I just wanted to continue the chronicling. But by then, like I said, it was too much else uh, was going on. And also, the experience has been changing. Once you started going from 
uh, vinyl, vinyl, vinyl to vinyl CD. By the way, we never considered cassettes real. I mean, anything that you can erase inadvertently, demagnetize, that's not a release. So that's why we, we, we never counted cassettes in our chronology, nor reel-to-reel. So once we started getting into CDs, it's like, all right, now we're getting alternate mixes, or at least renewally mixed. What do we do with that? Is that considered a different release? It's, uh, I don't want to deal with it. it. It just became, it didn't become fun anymore. It was something that would be too burdensome to do. Because I actually tried uh, a couple of versions of how do you deal with the CD quote, is it a reissue? Uh, is it a reissued box set? Well, then you don't do all the all the contents, except it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And we just never wanted to go into that kind of detail. And especially since I, uh, since Harry wasn't interested in collaborating on that, uh, I, I didn't want to do all those discussions with myself. I would have mm-hmm. driven myself crazy. Yeah, it gets far more complicated once you get into the reissues and the remasters and yeah. how does it all count. So. Yeah. Can I interject something here? Strange Days is also listed in the Popular Music Teaching Handbook by Beely Cooper and Rebecca Condon. I'm looking at an e-book. Uh, an e- it's on Google Books. I'm looking at an e-book of it right now, and it's listed in there. And I, uh, it's, by I, me? Yeah, by you. I, I no the reason the reason I found it is because I was you were talking about the book and I decided to see what would turn up in Google and there it is it's it's listed there it's, let me see what page it is it's on page one eighteen one eighteen there it is at the bottom it says it's right below uh, Gareth Pawlowski's how they became the Beatles it says Walter J Pedrasic Strange Days the music of John Paul George and Ringo twenty years on nineteen eighty eight. And that goes back to know you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> know you're wrong. Speaking of know you're wrong, I I had a question. You t- in the in the first book you you talk about bootlegs, and you mentioned peace of mind, which of course was not real. Um, right, right, but have right, you right. you know anything? Have you heard anything? That's the one one song that I would love to know where it came from. Have you ever heard anything about the origin of that thing? Hmm, I don't think so. Because it, it, it is a weird song. Right. I mean, calling it a song is even being too kind. Yeah, probably. But um, not not really. And, and you see, we're, we're in a really, uh, we've been, I know you led with news about people passing on. You mm-hmm. also mentioned Engelhardt's book about undercover and all. Uh, we're rapidly coming to the point at which the only people that could identify these are disappearing. Because you will not get an official uh, record company file that you can crack open and uh, right. and identify. So that's why I think uh, all the work that Mark Lewison is doing in terms of uh, just every source that he could find is so important because it's sort of the last attempt to call information while some of the principles are still alive. Right. Um, and uh, no, I, I don't have any further information. And the more time that intervenes, the less likely it is we're going to find out. Unless you have an out of the blue thing like Peter Asher saying, oh, by the way, and then the B side that uh, Paul was on too. Okay. Right. But right. It, yeah. that's how you're going to find it. Or from folks like you, when you all have your followings and your discussion postings and all, 
is someone who might have worked for someone who talked with someone could at least say, here's a place to look. Because I've, uh, never, I've never even heard a lead on this thing. Alan, have you? No, I haven't either. Yeah, people have said it was a Pink Floyd outtake, actually. I, they, sure. That's what they've said, but it, but but you know, I think that's that's kind of. I don't know that there's any legitimacy to that. Sometimes I mean, there's projection. It should be, yeah. uh, but that doesn't mean right. it is. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Need, I, it doesn't seem to sound like Pink Floyd to me. I know it's uh, early Ruddles. <laughs> pre pre Ruddles. Incidentally, I should say that um, as far as the mass marauders are concerned, uh-huh. there actually was a piece on CBS News on television. It ran for almost 10 minutes about the whole history of it. Oh, they actually devoted a piece on that, which you can find really? on YouTube, by the way. Yeah, how it all started with a, an article, a review in Rolling Stone, and people believed it was really the Beatles, you know, and they were calling up stores asking, how can I find this? And, you know, it's really interesting. I, I guess the it, fact that they, they actually devoted time to that. <laughs> it actually had, it actually had, uh, and it, it charted. Uh, Bay Area, it, 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 I don't know if it charted, but it had Bay area ties. There's the group that was involved was in the Bay area. And I'm, and I'm on, by the way, I am on Amazon right now. You can buy the complete DD recordings is what they call it. For nine ninety nine, which is actually pretty damn cheap. In fact, I'm gonna—I think I'm gonna get one right now. But uh, I, seriously, because—and it comes with—and on the Amazon, it comes with auto rip. Um, I—I wanted—I had a—I had a vinyl copy of it, and it got stolen from me years ago, and I haven't uh, had it since. And I love that album. I mean, that was just—that was just great. So, did it really sound like the Beatles? You never heard it? Oh, it's probably on YouTube. Um, um, well, kind of. Actually, it was more like Jagger because because the yeah, the, yeah, the lead yeah. track the lead track was called and I hope I have, I'm sorry if I offend anybody. The lead track set was called "I Can't Get No Nookie." <laughs> yes, I remember that. So and it sounded like Jagger. I mean, or kind of sounded like Jagger, you know. Mm. But. Uh, um, it was hilarious, uh, and and you know, that was what was so great about that that set. The the, the I don't know. It sounded like the Beatles. I think they, it, there were some Dylan, imi- there was a Dylan imitator oh, yeah. too. Yeah. But I but as far as the Beatles go, um, they were not as as I recall, they were not well represented in terms of imitators on there. So it was basically I think Jagger and Dylan being imitated. Mm. Is that is that what you guys remember? Alan, you remember that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I do. In fact, I, I have a copy. Anyway, okay. I just want to say, Wally, without my realizing it, I think Altogether Now had more of an influence on me than probably any Beatle book. Only because of the fact that whereas there are a lot of people in this world who look at the Beatles as though it's 1962 to 1970, cut, that's it. You know, your book opened up my eyes to all these other things. Certainly with the side projects and the Apple recordings, which I probably would have discovered anyway. But the fact mm-hmm. that there's so much more to the Beatles than just what they did as a band. And obviously there's a lot in there as a band, but it just continued. And um, to me, the Beatles, when you say the Beatles, it represents everything all four of them have ever done, whether it's together or on their own. And your books really illustrate that for me. So that's all I wanted to say. 
Well, thank you. Thank well, you. and I and I also have to say that I mean, and and I think I speak for a lot of people. I mean, they were so they and there still are. I mean, they were incredibly invaluable, and you guys did an incredible job. I mean, we've basically been telling you that, but I, you know, let's make it clear. I mean, it, it, they're great books. They're fantastic, you know. And you guys were pioneers, so. Well, I greatly appreciate that, and, and it gladdens our hearts that, that people got the theme of looking for more music than just what's on the official canon, which, by the way, is excellent to have. It's just there's so much more. Right. All right, so we're going to close by giving our folks contact information for each one of us, and we'll start with you, Steve. My email address is beatlesexaminer at gmail.com. I have my own Facebook page, which is personal and goes on more than music. But uh, for Beatle stuff, uh, Beatle News and Information is the group. And there's also a group for the show, Things We Said Today, Beatles Radio Fans. You can write us at Things We Said Today, Radio Show at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Things We Said Fab. There's a second Things We Said Today page on Facebook that's for the Fab Four Radio broadcasts on the weekends on saturday and sunday i think that's that's about it as far as the show goes uh but by all means contact us you can download us on podbean uh on tune in radio uh we're in a number of places and you can stream us on youtube um so there we go we're everywhere okay alan how about you the easiest way to get to me is through facebook either through Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remixed. Okay, and Wally, I know you have your own website. Yeah, it's MediaWally.com, uh, or you can send an email to Wally at WatchingTV.org. Okay, and as for okay. me, Ken Michaels, uh, you can write to me at my email address, which is everylittlething at att.net. I also have a Facebook page for Ken Michaels. And my website is kenmichaelsradio.com. Visit the website every day for Beatles trivia. And you can win one of nine prizes every single week and listen to very interesting interviews with uh, some of the same people that we interview on this show. Again, that's kenmichaelsradio.com. Wally, this has been absolutely fantastic. It is so great having you here on the show. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed it as well. Okay. And for Alan Cozen, Steve Marinucci, and Wally Pedrasic, this is Ken Michaels thanking you all for listening. And we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>